<laughs> Might be the sweetest part of the service. It is. it is, isn't it? Watching those little ones, they remind me of God's beauty and wonder. Let's pray. Father, even as we mention that, I am uh, moved by your goodness to allow us to be parents or to observe a small child, the wonder that we see in their face as they see things for the first time. And Father, we, as we get older, we lose that sense of awe and that sense of wonder I pray that you would help us find it again, that our vision would be fresh, that we could see something as simple as a, a night sky or a hawk in flight and be astonished again at your creation. You are the great creator. You alone are worthy of our praise. I pray that this Next moments where we engage over your word and I preach and others listen and we interact and meditate and linger in your word, that you would be at work in our soul, that you would speak to us, that you'd reveal yourself to us in new and fresh ways, and we would be in awe of you. To be near to you is our greatest good, and in your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Father, usher us into your presence now, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. You notice I finished my prayer. (laughs) Joseph is doing his best up there, and Greg is doing his best. Um, I finished my prayer with, in Jesus' name, amen. If you look at our text, you can see right there, and it is in the text, in verse 13, it says, look there with me if you would, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So if you wonder, why do we end our prayers with, in Jesus' name, amen, this would be one of the key texts to help us understand that. So while I've got y'all with me and I want y'all to join in, I'm going to pray that my mortgage would be paid off by next week. (laughs) And anything I pray in Jesus' name is going to come true, right? Well, maybe, maybe it's not that simple. So hopefully by the time we finish today, we'll answer that question. What was Jesus saying there? As well as some other ones. Like, Jesus in that text, also he says, we'll do greater works than he did. Now, if you just brief, you know, summary, remember, just a couple of chapters ago, he raised Lazarus from the dead. And Jesus is saying, you're going to do greater works than I. So I'm going, really? 
I mean, are we really going to do that? It's another hopeful, uh, we'll get an answer for that. He says, uh, there is a relationship between our love for him in verse 21 in our text and our obedience to him. And I think there's a lot of confusion in the church about obedience and love. How do those work together? What is he trying to say there? And then maybe one of the more confusing parts of the text is verse 23. In verse 23, he says, we're going to come, the Father and myself, Jesus is speaking, and we're going to make our home with you. Now, how are they going to make their home with us? So we're going to look at our text and hopefully answer all of this today. Look first, though, at John, I mean, yeah, John 14, 12 through 14. So I want to see you look in your Bible and, uh, and read this text with me so that I know you're kind of following, following along. And again, y'all know I, I have my Bible up here. I would look at my Bible, but it wouldn't do me any good unless I put my glasses on and I put everything in 18 font on my notes. And so I read from that, but it's the exact same thing. Um, so John 14, 12 through 14, it says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do. He says, because I'm going to the father. When's he going to the father? In just a couple of days, it will be Good Friday, and he will be crucified and go to the Father. Or he'll be resurrected. He'll Actually, if you want to know the timeline, he'll be crucified on Good Friday, resurrected on Sunday, three days later. He'll spend 40 days with his disciples, and then he ascends to go be with the Father. So that's the timetable. Now, it says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Isn't it interesting? He kind of keeps repeating, ask anything in my name and I'll do it. What is he saying there? Because the truth be known, probably 13 years ago, I read this text and I thought, Lord, I'm going to take you at your word. And I started praying that somehow my mortgage would get paid off. And here I am 13 years later, and I owe more on my mortgage than I ever have. So that, that part of it probably isn't what he meant, is it? Well, you got to remember what is happening when we get to this verse. Leading up to this verse, if you remember, Jesus has said to the guys in chapter 13, he has told them, listen, I'm about to be killed. Not only am I going to be killed, but you're going to betray me. And Peter, you're going to betray me three times before morning. And so these guys are distraught. They're depressed. And Jesus is speaking into that, and he's saying, it's going to be okay, guys. In so many words, he's saying, you, you can, you're not going to be alone. You can ask me anything in my name, and I'll do it. I'm going to be there with you. I'm going to help you. He says, 
I'm going to the Father, and I'm going, remember last week we talked about mansions, and in the King James Version of the Bible, translated from the Latin Vulgate, the word it says in the King James is I'm going and I'm going to go prepare a mansion for you. And I realize that most of us grew up hearing it that way. And for me to say anything other than that feels kind of crazy. But the reality is, in, in the other translations, the, new, the newer translations, not that necessarily newer is better, but if you go back to the original language, the wording there is dwelling place, not mansion. And if you think about it, do we really need a mansion in the sky? Because what we will have is so much more. We will be in the presence of God himself. We, we, I don't need a mansion. I'm in the presence of the most awesome being there ever was. And I'm going to show you from John 14, 2, this indwelling idea, over to John 14, 23, when he says he's going to make a home with us. There's a connection, and it's immediate. He's going to come and dwell in us in the power of the Holy Spirit. So he says, I'm going to prepare an in, a dwelling place. What he's saying is, I've got to go to the cross. I've got to pay for your sins. And then I'm going to be resurrected. I'm going to appear to you, and then I'm going to be ascended. And then I'm going to send my Holy Spirit. And when my Spirit comes, the Father and I are going to dwell in you. That's the point. That's why in John 14, 2, he says, I'm going to prepare. I'm not going to get my hammer out and do sheetrock work and build you this mansion for thousands of years. No, I'm going to do the work of salvation. I'm going to do the work of the cross. And then after I finish that work, me and the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit are going to indwell you and make ourselves at home with you. That's the point. That's what he's trying to tell these disciples who are beat up and depressed and discouraged. It's not working out the way they thought. That's what he's telling them. So, and then, you know, these greater works, another thought about the greater works, the authenticating miracles, the powers that God used in the Old Testament with the prophets and in the New Testament with the, with the uh, apostles, they are authenticating miracles. What do I mean by authenticating miracles. It means when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, people look at Jesus and go, well, he must be God. That authenticates him. When later Peter does it in Acts, he raises someone from the dead, they go, well, that must be from God. It authenticates. But now, I, I, I took this out. I was going to show it to you. There was a documentary that came out in 2015, and it's a guy, and he has a group, a team, and they're called the, uh, the Dead Raisers. It's a documentary. You can look it up. And they go around, and there's five of them. They're nice-looking guys. They wear these black T-shirts. They're kind of a medium shirt. They've all been working out a lot, and their shirts are a little too small, and, uh, and they're posing. 
and it says dead raisers. And I read about them, and there's no proof that they've ever raised anybody from the dead, but they're taking it from this verse. You'll do greater things than I. Now, I believe that the miracles that we see in the Bible, the reason I don't do a miracle today and, and bring, you know, our, honestly, our beloved strawberry back from the dead is because Paul said, it is better to be with Christ. I, I really don't think I would be doing him a favor to bring him back. These miracles were to authenticate that it was God at work. If I do a miracle, it would be to make me look good. And that's what we see with television evangelists and TV preachers all the time. They're making themselves look good. The apostles and the prophets were making much of God. And so God allowed them to raise people from the dead and to do miraculous things so that we know this is from God. That's what that's all about. But I also believe there's another piece, and I want you to look with me just two pages back in your Bible probably to John 11, 41 and 42. We're back to the Lazarus story, and I think there is some works here that God is calling every believer to that are what he is referring to over in our passage in John 14. Let me read to you John 11, 41 through 42, it says, <clears throat> So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes, and he said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. So what Jesus is saying is, I'm about to raise Lazarus from the dead, but I want everybody here to realize that I am relying on the Father. I'm going to do this miracle by relying on the power of the Father. And the Spirit of God is going to revive Lazarus. When I say Lazarus, come forth, he's going to come forth. And these people are going to know, as I said, it is an authenticating miracle that this guy comes forward. Only God can do that. So Jesus is relying on the Father. That's really interesting. Why is that interesting to me? Because in our passage, he says, you can do greater works than me. How are we going to do greater works? Think about this. Which is really a greater miracle? Raising a person physically from the dead or raising a person spiritually because the Bible says in Ephesians we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Raising a person spiritually from spiritual death to spiritual life. I think the latter is more significant because we're talking about eternity if that person's soul crosses from darkness to light, from being a God-hater to a God-worshipper, that is an astonishing thing. And what Jesus is saying is, if you'll rely on me, 
If you rely on the Spirit in you from where he talks about in 23, where we make our home with you, you can go out there in your community and in so many words, by sharing the gospel with people, you're saying, Lazarus, come forth. You can do works that bring dead people to life because God has given you the power through his spirit. And I think Jesus is at least talking about that. When I was in college, most of y'all know, I was on the football team at West Georgia and the ministry that I was involved in was just getting started. It was a brand new ministry in the uh, mid-80s. And several of the guys on the football team became Christians, me being one of them. And we used to meet in the bottom of the football dorm at about 5.30 in the morning. And we would lay out a map on the floor of the world. And we were young guys, and we were dreaming big. And we would pray, Lord, use us here where we are to raise up people that will go to Indonesia Father, use us in this football, on this football team to raise up people that will go to Brazil and Thailand and Japan and Mexico. And we would name, we'd put our finger on them and we'd name countries. Now it's been 30 years. And you know, that ministry and campus outreach is in... I think it's 17 different countries all over the world and in about 30 states in the U.S. And most of them trace back to a handful of guys in the basement of a football dorm asking God over a map to use us. God says, you can do greater works than me. I've got to go to the Father. My time here is short. But you have 2,000 plus years when you consider the whole of Christianity. And so I read a church historian this week, and uh, in my reading, this is what he said. He's convinced that when Jesus made the statement, greater works than these will you do, he was referring to the whole scope of the impact of Christ's people and his church in the world throughout history. He says, I'm reading this historian, he says, I know a lot of people look at the history of Western civilization, and they say that the bulk of the church's influence has been negative. The black eye of the Crusades, if you just do a little bit of historical work and look at the Crusades, it's not pretty. The Galileo episode where he had the telescope and he tried to tell everybody the world is not flat and the Catholic Church said, no, the world is flat. And then later on they were like, whoops, we're sorry, it wasn't. You know, they, we missed it. The, uh, the end of the Roman, or excuse me, the Holy Wars. So many would say the, the scope of what Christianity has done is not good. But if you look at the record. If you see that it was the Christian church that spearheaded the, uh, the, uh, the end of slavery and the end of the Roman arena and the whole concept of education, 
the concept of charitable hospitals and orphanages and a host of other humanitarian activities, this historian says, I think personally that that's what Jesus meant when he said, you'll do greater works. Now, Rebecca McLaughlin says this, interesting. She said, Christianity is the greatest intellectual movement in history. If you think about starting schools and education, when it comes to the academic world, we shouldn't meekly ask for a place at the table. We should pull up a chair to the table that we built. I'm not saying that arrogantly as a Christian, but Christians have been involved in developing society and civilization for thousands of years, and they have been incredibly, incredibly helpful in doing so. Now, changing gears from the greater works to something else Jesus said in John 14, 14. So do me a favor, and even if you're not going to really read it, just look at your Bible. Make me think that you're looking and you're following along. Um, John 14, 14, he says, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So what did Jesus mean? When he told the disciples this, he wants the disciples to know, though he is leaving, he is going to give them power. If they will ask in his name, according to his will, in Matthew 6, 10, it says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If they will request in his name, in his will, he will make it happen. If it's about building his kingdom and not my kingdom, if it's his will in his kingdom, he will bring power to bear to make that happen. So the first thing is request in his name. The second in answering this of what did he mean by anything in my name is there's this reliance to acknowledge that one is spiritually impoverished. I can't do this. There's a, there's a lack of self-sufficiency, an, an utter unworthiness on my part. I need Christ. I need God to intervene. And so I'm relying on him. I'm relying on his power. That's what he's saying. And then, and then there's this idea of relinquishing. So you request you rely, but then you also relinquish. And what I mean by relinquish is I let go of when I pray, God, um, you know, heal this person of cancer. Frankly, I don't know if you've thought about this a whole lot, and this is probably a hard thought for many of us. But ultimately, God may not will that they be healed from cancer. It might be that God's will is to take them through that storm that they grow closer to him and that going through that experience is going to take them to a place in their relationship with God that they would have never been without that. And so even as we age, don't waste your age. Don't waste your cancer. Don't waste 
those hard things that God brings in your life. Let them draw you closer and closer to him. It is your ultimate good. So now, John 14, 15. This one is a little trickier. Look there with me in your Bible. It says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That seems pretty straightforward. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. In this section of Scripture, scripture our natural flow of thought, I think, just when I read it myself, my natural flow of thought is I prove my love by my works. I prove that I love him by my works. That's my natural way, I think, when I read that text. But let me, let me suggest it might be a little trickier than that. Here's an illustration. If you've got good reflexes, and I realize some of us don't, we're too old to have good reflexes. At one point, we might have had good reflexes. And you go to the doctor, and he sits you up on the table, and he, uh, you know, feels on your knee for the spot, and he gets his little hammer, and he taps on your knee. And if you've got good reflexes, that lower leg might even kick him, you know. You're gonna, that, it's going to reflex. It is a reflex. It's a reaction to being triggered by his little hammer. Well, much like this, when the human soul is tapped by God, there's a reflex. There's a regenerating work that happens in the soul of a person when God taps that spot and he regenerates that heart. And you see what happens when that heart becomes regenerative. He takes away the heart of stone. He gives the heart of flesh. It's, it's just like the doctor tapping the leg, the instant, re it's just a reflex. It's just a reflex. To do good works is just a reflex because I've been fundamentally changed from the inside. I'm not proving that I love God by my works. God has changed me at a heart level in a way that I could have never done myself. He took out my heart of stone and he gave me a heart of flesh and now it's just a reflex to do good works. You see? So when the scripture says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, he's saying, if I've tapped your heart, you'll do good works. It's just a reflex. It's just a reflex. It is the reflex of the awakened and newborn soul to all that is true, good, and beautiful embodied in Jesus. That's what it is. In short, loving Jesus is not a matter of doing excellent things. Loving Jesus is not a matter of doing excellent things. It's a matter of delighting in an excellent Savior. Not doing excellent things, but delighting in an excellent God. Jesus says, doing excellent things, keeping my word, is the result of delighting in an excellent Savior. If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. He just will. However, to, 
because I think there is so much confusion around this topic, what role does good works play in really knowing God and really having a relationship with God? One more illustration. It starts out like a bad joke. These three men come to heaven. And uh, the first guy gets there and God says, it does sound like a bad joke, doesn't it? Um, the fir first guy gets there and God says, why should I let you into my heaven? And this guy says with true deep sincerity, he says, I worked my entire life to be a good man. I've tried my hardest to be honest, to be trustworthy, to be a reliable husband and a good father. And God looks at this man and he says, it sounds like to me you're trusting in your good works to get into heaven. In other words, you're standing in quicksand. Depart from me, I never knew you. The second guy, he comes to, the, to heaven and God says, why should I let you into my heaven? <clears throat> he responds, um, I, I trusted in Christ to save me and I have worked day after day, night after night, year in, year out, to be a good person and to obey. Now, this one gets a little tricky. God responds, you know, you started out great. You got one foot on the rock, which is my son. But then you turned around and you put one foot on your record, which is quicksand. He says, depart from me, I never knew you. You say, whoa, Clint, wait, wait. He trusted in Christ and he was a good guy. Well, he was trusting in Christ and he was trusting in his good works. That's why it's tricky. The third man comes to God and he says, why should I allow you into my heaven? And the third man says this, I'm a sinner. You shouldn't allow me into your heaven. But I trusted in your son. And I trusted in the saving work that he did on the cross for my sins. And I repented and I've hoped in him and him alone. And God says, enter into your rest. You see, it is in Christ alone. The part that works play is just the knee-jerk reaction. Once the heart has been tapped by God, the reflex is to do the good works. The good works have no part in saving you. But... A man that has truly been saved by God will do good works.
It is a faith that works. And you see that in Galatians 5, 6. It says in Galatians 5, 6, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, which is basically another way of saying works, doing something, counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Only faith working through love. So, then the question becomes, if you keep my commandments, you love me. So the question is, what are the commandments? And this one's easy, and it's quick. The commandments are basically everything that God has told us to do. You keep, you keep his word. You keep his commandments. The entire revelation of God's will, we keep. Then the question, though, is, okay, so how do you do that? And that's a little harder. How do we keep it? We keep it carefully, very, very carefully. And what we find is sometimes we'll read something in here, and if, if you don't believe me, just go home tonight and read Romans 9. That, that's all you'll need. You're going to read some things that are really hard. And what you're going to be tempted to do is you're going to be tempted to say, well, I don't believe that because that's not what I grew up believing. But that's not, <laughs> we can't do that, guys. This is the Bible. If God says, I wiped out a whole nation in the Old Testament or killed them all, he had a reason for that. And I can't just decide, well, that part isn't really the Bible. I don't believe that. No, the whole thing is the Bible. I've got to follow it carefully. And then I've got to follow it impartially. I can't, like I was saying, I can't pick or choose. And then I've got to follow it cheerfully. Following God's commandments should bring me pleasure. You know how you know if you're not a Christian? Before I became a Christian, the guy that was sharing Christ with me, he was having a ministry on the football team. He said to me, Clint, what is keeping you from giving your life to Christ? And I was 20 years old, and I looked him in the eye, and I wasn't even embarrassed about it. I said, man, when I think about becoming a Christian, it sounds like the most boring life I could ever have. I mean, you got to be good all the time, and you got to do the right things. I said, I don't know if you know this, but I'm having, I got a girlfriend at home. I got a girlfriend at school. I'm going to all these parties. College is fun. I'm having the time of my life. What I didn't realize is Proverbs 14, 12, 13. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Even in laughter, the heart may ache, and the end of joy may be grief. That was, where I was, that was where I was headed. And then the final way we keep his commands is perseveringly. Now, this also gets tricky. Everything else I told you, you're going to be tempted to go, ah, he's wrong, because that's what it says in the Bible. When it says, keep the commandments, it says, all the way to the end, look at Matthew 24, 13. But the one who endures to the end 
will be saved. How do you get around that one, Clint? The one who endures to the end will be saved. One, I'd say, we know a lot of people, you know them and I know them, and I hope I'm never one of them, that had an experience somewhere in our lives, and we say we became a Christian. But now, there's no evidence of that. And a lot of times I've talked about it like, they kind of got God on the hook. I had that experience. I came down the aisle and prayed, God, I got, I got you on the hook for this. You said, once saved, always saved, so I'm saved. I got my ticket in my pocket, and when I die, I'm going to heaven. You got to come through. You said you would. Is that what the Bible really teaches? No, what it's saying there is this. When he taps that heart with his Holy Spirit, when he regenerates that man, that woman, they're going to follow him the rest of their days. And the proof that he did that back here is that they do that. The rest of their life, they follow him. They learn to love him. They're drawn to the truth of the word and they see the beauty in the face of Christ and they persevere to the end. Those are the ones that are truly his. That's what the text is teaching. And so it is a scary thing when you think about your friends, family members who had an experience, but where are they now? If they don't persevere to the end, the scripture would say that wasn't saving faith. It was something else. It was an emotional experience. It was something, but it wasn't God doing a regenerative work, taking a heart of stone and making it a heart of flesh. It was something else. Final thing is this. And I hate to do this to you because I know it's a little warm in here. At least I'm a little warm. Maybe it's because I'm up here and you're down there. But this is the delicate play on words in chapter 14 that I want you to get. I want you to understand it because I think it's really significant. And it unlocks this whole chapter in a significant way. And here it is. <clears throat> there are three distinct things that you got to understand. There is Jesus, his climatic second coming, right? Jesus will come back. All right, let's, let's do it like this. The very first coming of Jesus was when he came as a baby and Mary and Joseph raised him, correct? Right. We talk about in the Bible the second coming. And the Bible talks about the second coming. And that's when he comes back to get his people, right? The second coming. But there, in our text is two things that are kind of confusing because it's really not talking about the first coming and it's not really talking about the second coming. It's talking about something else. And this is where Jesus is saying, I'm going to prepare a place for you. So... He's going to return to them alive, resurrected on Easter Sunday. 
So there's this other appearance of Jesus, and I'm calling it, for lack of clarity, the external experience that they have with him three days after he's killed, all right? And this is where the trick comes in. In, in uh, 4 2, look at, look at uh, 14, verse 2. Look in there with me. It says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, remember what I was saying is when he's saying he's going to prepare a place for us, he's not putting on his tool belt and going and fixing this room up in heaven somewhere. He's going to the cross. He's going to go prepare a place for you by paying for your sin. And that's why when you get to verse 23 of chapter 14, Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. He's not building you a place in heaven. He's getting ready for an indwelling place in you. And he's getting you ready by paying for your sins because he cannot enter without holiness. And after he pays for your sins, you are made righteous before the Father. And now you become the temple of God. You become the dwelling place. And now that you're the dwelling place, you get a mission from God to go out into the world and say, Lazarus, come forth. And you will do greater things than he. Because God has given you the power of the Holy Spirit in your person to do great works. The question for all of us is, do we believe it? Do we really believe that? Will we rely on Christ to do these greater works? And if, if we're honest, our answer for me and for you, the reason I do not share the gospel with more people and the reason that you do not share the gospel with more people is we don't, we're not convicted of this. We fear people more than we fear God. And we will not take the gospel to them for fear of what they may think about us. And Paul says, if I'm a fool, I'm a fool for Christ. If, and this, this is, I just so wish we could get this at First Baptist Chattahoochee. If we became a people, and I pray we do, that really is taking the gospel to our friends and our family and our coworkers and our neighbors. If you preach, and not preach like this, but preach or teach and speak the gospel in love, you know what will happen to our church? We'll do what we want it to do. We'll grow. People will come to faith in Christ. You have the power of God in you. 
and his gospel works. But you say, I haven't seen many people do that. How many people have you shared Christ with in the last week, month, year? I would be willing to bet, and I'm not saying this as a legalistic thing in any way whatsoever, but I would be willing to bet that if every member of First Baptist Church, Chattahoochee, truly, not just mentioned God, that they were a Christian, but shared the true gospel with 10 people in the next two weeks, if every member did it, I'd be willing to bet we'd see five to 10 people come to faith in Christ. Because the gospel is the power for salvation. So, final thing. What is the relationship between obedience and loving God? I'm just going to say it just one last way. What if a young man told his girlfriend, honey, I love you. But then he never talks about her. He doesn't talk to her. He doesn't spend time with her. What would we conclude? He doesn't really love her. He might have loved her once, but he doesn't love her now. You might be sitting here and you're saying, you know, if I honestly put myself through that test, maybe I don't love God. For your soul's sake, you should ask, do I really love him? Is the reflex there? Do I just want to do good in him for his glory, to see his beauty? And if not... Know that your soul hangs in the balance. If that's not true of you, it's a dangerous place to be. Let me pray.